My name is Jessica Bissett, and I'm the Director of Leadership Programs at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Last year, we spoke twice with Sun Yun, Director of the China Program at the Stimson Center, for our interview series, Eyes on Ukraine, Strategic Implications for China, Russia, and the United States. Once before Russia's February 24th invasion of Ukraine, and then once again on March 7th, a couple of weeks later. As we approach the one-year anniversary of the invasion, Yoon has agreed to join us for a third installment in this series. Yoon, as always, thank you so much for taking the time to help us better understand what has transpired over the past 12 months and what the future may hold. We have a lot to cover, so let's jump right in. So one year into this deadly conflict, what does the view from China look like? Do you have a sense about the general mood amongst the Chinese public? And does the public sentiment track with the official line? Has China's narrative about the war evolved at all? Uh, thank you, Jessica. Thank you for having me. And thank you for the great questions. Um, I think for, for China, one year into this, this war between Russia and Ukraine, China more than ever wants this war to be over. And this desire has been expressed by different levels of the Chinese leadership, as well as Chinese officials. And I think that position does reflect where China is. The question is, what will China have to do to bring the war to an end, right? It's always easy to call for peace and call for the two sides to settle. But unfortunately, that is not a political reality that we're currently looking at. So I think as, for example, um, Wang Yi is currently in Europe and doing his diplomatic maneuver, um, I think the key question is that what is China willing to do in terms of the uh, the solution or in terms of a settlement of the of the war? In China, I think the official narrative about the war has evolved quite a bit. And I'm sure people can recall about a year ago when the war first broke out, the Chinese was very they were very defensive of Russia. They were almost entirely blaming NATO for its expansion and for Ukraine for inviting NATO expansion for triggering the Russian uh, response, for triggering the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, that line we don't see as much in China today, in China's official narrative. This reference to NATO being responsible for the war, I mean, if you ask the Chinese officials, they will still go there. But this is not the top position or the top line they're trying to, they're trying to strike. For the Chinese general public, I think there is still a sense of illusion that somehow Russia is not going to lose that somehow Russia is, is still doing okay with, uh, with the war. And you see this from the, um, from the, from the Chinese, for example, the um, discussions online about how Russia was faking its failure. And in fact, Russia has been planning this big pushback and it will be a decisive and swift military victory uh, being repeated on the, on the Chinese, um, among the Chinese netizens, which forms a sharp contrast to how the Russia experts in China views the war, because they see that there's no doubt Russia is losing and Russia is not going to see a chance of achieving the goal it has set out to achieve a year ago. And Russia, no matter what happens to the end of this war, Russia is going to end up as a, as a weaker power. So I think this distinction between the Chinese general public and the Chinese expert community is also, uh, is also very interesting. That is interesting. That's that's quite a distinction. Um, moving to economics and trade, according to a recent Wall Street Journal article, despite international sanctions and export controls, Chinese state-owned defense companies are shipping navigation equipment, jamming technologies, and jet fighter parts to sanctioned Russian government-owned defense companies. 
What do you think is the impact of continuing Chinese shipments to Russia after a year of war? Is this something that was to be expected and will it continue? Do you think these shipments speak to a larger issue of the effectiveness of, of sanctions against Russia? Help us unpack the China-Russia economic relationship a bit more. Well, it seems the Wall Street Journal article covered a really uh, interesting aspect that people have been asking. What kind of military support that China has been providing Russia? And because of the lack of data and because of well, both the Chinese and Russians were not really transparent coming to their customs data, uh, I think we were not able to answer this question. But I think the recent uh, Wall Street Journal article was able to provide some shed some light on this. And I think they quoted extensively the report from a uh, investigative think tank here in, here in Washington. Um, I think on this issue, what I, I like to emphasize is that any discussion about quality without a discussion of quantity is going to be, uh, is going to be selective. It's only going to reflect a part of the truth. Because if you look at the list of what the Chinese have provided based on these, uh, these reports, the list of what China has provided to Russia, it looks very long and very impressive. But then if you look at the quantity, the quantity in terms of the bilateral trade and in terms of this shipment, I would say that for normal arms trade or normal tech trade between China and Russia, the quantity is fairly small. So it suggests two things to me. The first one is that this is not a large scale evasion of the Western sanction or the US sanction, but instead I think this is more reflection of a sporadic cases of individual Chinese companies doing this to, to help Russia or to, simply export what Russia is in dire need for, and they're eager to make a profit. And the other um, takeaways that I have from this is that I find it very difficult to, to draw the linkage between these shipment or these trade with a government-sanctioned approach or government-sanctioned order for this to happen, because the scale is very small. And I guess you could say that, well, even if it is small, it still could be sanctioned by the central government, which is which is possible. But I think that brings us to the question that what is the critical impact of these limited quantity of, uh, of, of equipments or, or technology or even semiconductor chips in this case? I think one of the data, if I recall correctly, uh, one of the data point pointed to China was exporting $13 million worth of drones to Russia. And if you think about it, well, $13 million, that's quite a lot. But then if you think about the price of the Chinese drones, it's at least $1 million each, right? So which means that while well, limited, well, something like a dozen drones, is that really going to change the change anything on, on the battlefield? So of course, if you look at it as a black or white matter, did China send these equipments to Russia? Yes, it did. But if the question is, did the Chinese equipment play a critical role in uh, on the battlefield? Then, well, China, Russia still has been has been losing. So I think these these data and these uh, these facts needs to be interpreted from uh, from several different different directions. That's a really good point. The quantity and quality dynamic. Um, can you talk a little bit just to follow up about economics and trade? Can you talk about the role? of um, China continuing to buy Russian oil and natural gas. Is that helping to kind of continue to feed the, the Ru Russia's war machine, I guess? Is that playing a dominant role in kind of keeping Russia afloat during this time? Uh, the simple answer is yes, right? Because that's revenue creation. 
that creates the, the, the foreign exchange that Russia uses to continue its effort, well, not only in the battlefield, but also continue its, uh, its, its national economy, so basically. Um, but if you look at the impact of the, um, again, the impact of this revenue creation on the war, well, the simple fact is that Russia is still losing. So how much has this revenue creation really helped Russia to win this war? I think that's a separate question. We'll have a different, we'll have a different answer. And if we look at, for example, the Chinese import of the Russian oil, uh, I think one thing that people don't pay as much attention to is that, yes, the value of the Chinese oil import from Russia increased very significantly last year. In fact, if we look at bilateral trade, the bilateral trade between China and Russia increased almost 30% mm. in the year of 2022. And looking at the value of crude oil import from Russia alone, it increased by 44%. So almost increased by, by half of, uh, of the value in 2021. But then again, other than the value, you also look at the, the volume. The volume of the Chinese oil import from Iran, uh, I'm sorry, from Russia only increased 8%. So what does that mean? That means that the crude oil export that Russia sold to China was much more expensive in 2022 compared to 2021. And that's because of the effect of the war that drove up the international energy price. So and between China and Russia, the, the price of their, uh, of their oil trade has a complicated formula based on several different prices. So it fluctuates. It's not a fixed price. When the international oil price goes up, the price that China has to pay to Russia to buy oil also goes up, which is why is that you look at the value, wow, it inc increased by 44%. And then you look at the volume, it only increased by 8%. That's a really helpful distinction. Thanks. Thank you for unpacking that a bit more. I wanted to move on to some of the Ukraine-Taiwan parallels that we've all heard about over the past year. Um, in our interview last March, you noted that Russia's war in Ukraine could be viewed as a model or a template for a Chinese invasion of Taiwan in the future. How has the war evolved as a reference point for China? And what lessons has China taken away from this? Oh, the Chinese takeaway on this has uh, has has become has been so rich, right, throughout the past year. And yes, I still think that the Russian war in Ukraine could be viewed and has been viewed as a model or a template or at least a comparable case for a Chinese invasion or what the Chinese will call the, uh, the unification effort of, uh, of, of Taiwan. But it's almost entirely a model or a template of what not to do. Because the Russia fiasco on the battlefield has translated into a very sobering message to the Chinese officials, to Chinese government, and especially the Chinese military, that you can think that you prepared for war really well, but when the war actually starts, it may go into directions that you never thought it would. And if you think about the Russian war in Ukraine before it um, before it broke out, or when it right after it broke out. The whole world thought Russia was going to prevail in a week, right? And nobody thought that Ukraine was able to last for this long. But one year later, the battlefield situation has shown us and has told the world that, well, we were wrong in our original estimate. So I think that is the first and most important takeaway for China, that a invasion plan of Taiwan will have to take into consideration of all possibilities 
and the things may not go as smoothly or swiftly as the Chinese would like, no matter how they think they will be successful. And the second takeaway I think for China is the prohibitive cost associated with such a war. When the Chinese look at Russia, yes, Russia is still able to sell their energy resources and it seems to have gener generated revenue uh, for the year of 2022. But if you, when the Chinese look at the financial, economic, trade, technological, let alone military, political, and diplomatic costs that Russia has to pay for this war that is not even winning. I think the takeaway for China is that even if we are successful in taking over Taiwan militarily, we still have to consider whether these costs are going to be worth it. Because remember, for the Chinese, unification is regarded as a component, a necessary component of national rejuvenation, the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, right? But at the same time, if the cost of the unification is precisely China's rejuvenation of the great Chinese nation, then it's not gonna work. The equation no longer uh, no longer flies in the, in the Chinese logic. So I think all in all, the Chinese takeaway from the Russian war in Ukraine is that we need to be more careful, we need to be more cautious, and we need to be prepared that one, we may not win this war at this point, and two, even if we win this war, the cost will be so high that it may not be worth our while. All very interesting dynamics to think about. I wanted to take a bit of a step back and look at international power dynamics. Um, we kind of explored this in our in our last interview, and you were uncertain as to how things might um, might show themselves as the war kind of was at a starting point at this time. It's really interesting. Um, you know, the the war has simultaneously brought United States and its European uh, democratic allies closer together, but it's also highlighted some interesting fault lines and some shifts. Interestingly, countries south, uh, such as South Africa, India, and Indonesia um, haven't gotten on board with the West. Could you talk a little bit more about this and some of your thoughts on the international power dynamics? Yeah, this is a really complex question. And if you look at the Chinese narrative and how the Chinese policy wonks unpack this issue, there are at least several different layers, right? So first of all, if you look at the UN, uh, for example, the UN voting, and look at the international opinion about this war, like you said, BRICS countries, South Africa, Brazil, um, India, and China, they are not necessarily in the same position as the Western countries in terms of their strong criticism or condemnation of the of the war. So I think the Chinese will even argue that if you look at the, the broad scope of all the countries in the world, uh, the West is still in the absolute minority coming to their, their position about, about this war. But then coming more specifically to China's relationship with the West, I think that's where it gets even more interesting because the Chinese diplomatic position or the priority clearly has been, um, well, not to abandon Russia, but at the same time, also try to repair and mend the ties with Western countries, especially European countries, to make sure that China still has a relatively healthy relationship with them and can retain access to, for example, high-tech products that uh, US that is no longer available from the, from the United States. So I think in terms of the international power dynamics, the war in Ukraine is seen as an, as an event that has created a major uncertainty 
for China's future. But it also, you know, the Chinese logic, whenever there is a crisis, it also means opportunity. So I think they're also seeing that a desired end game for China or desired position for China is to put China in a relatively neutral position that all sides or both sides, Russia and the West, both want China's support. Both want China to stage support of their position. So that will put China in a, in a, in a, um, basically in an invincible position that each side, if each side all needs China's support and needs China to be on their side, then China has the option and China has the leverage, right? But the danger of that of that strategy is, uh, well, if you are stretched too thin between these two irreconcilable positions, you could uh, you could anger everybody. And I think at some point uh, towards the, the end of last year, um, China was in that position because Russia has been very disappointed with the Chinese lack of unlimited support to Russia during the war. But at the same time, I think European countries were also extremely frustrated with China not taking a righteous or a just position or even an objective position on the, on the war. So I think a lot of the diplomatic charm offensive, including Xi Jinping's commitment uh, position during his meeting with uh, German Chancellor Scholz in Beijing that nuclear weapons should not be used in any circumstances is an effort to repair this uh, this this relationship. So it's a delicate balance, and China is trying to manage, uh, but it's still a, a delicate and a precarious position. Speaking of Europe and Germany, uh, Chinese China's top diplomat Wang Yi has been in Moscow this week on his way to the Munich Security Conference, paving the way for a potential visit of President Xi to Russia later this year. What do you anticipate coming out of these meetings and what should observers be looking for as we aim to filter the signal from the noise? Oh, I think that's a fascinating question because like you said, Wang Yi's trip and Wang Yi's uh, diplomatic engagements in Europe is clearly paving the ground for something. And that's something, as a lot of Chinese policy wonks are spe have been speculating, is indeed a visit of President Xi to Russia. And you have to imagine what kind of detrimental effect that visit will have in terms of China's relationship with the United States and China's relationship with, uh, with Europe. Because it basically will prove everything that Wall Street Journal and all these Western observers and Western media have been saying about China being the supporter or even the accomplice of Russia in the war in Ukraine is true. So I think for China, how to manage the consequences or to do damage control of this trip is really the top priority because that will determine pretty much how much the um, the improvement between Washington and Beijing can transpire. If Beijing does not strike the right message, if Beijing comes out of the, the visit looking like what China is indeed being the accomplice of Russia, I think a lot of the prospect or the hope for improvement of relations with the West, by the way, which is the priority of Chinese foreign policy in 2023 after the, the, 20, uh, the 20th Party Congress last year, a lot of these hope will, will be in vain. And they will not. Uh, they will not transpire. So I, I I can understand why the diplomatic groundwork is being is being paved, but it's still going to be a very tricky position to take. One thing that I suspect the Chinese will do, like uh, I think the uh, Wang Yi earlier today or yesterday in his meeting with the Italian Foreign Minister, 
he mentioned that Xi Jinping is going to make a statement to call for peace on the one year anniversary of the uh, of the of the Ukraine war. And I think that potentially is something that the Chinese will test to do, which is you probably remember in spring last year, China has indicated, implied that it could mediate, but it never did anything for the whole course of the uh, the past year. But now I think China could indicate to Europe that, well, we have channels of communication open with Moscow, and we also have some influence with Moscow. So instead of seeing us as the accomplice of Russia, maybe you can see us as a helpful dialogue partner that we can help to facilitate communications, pass messages, and let's talk about the end of the war. We'll be very curious to see if that announcement comes. Yes, I, wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to turn a little bit uh, more specifically to U.S.-China relations, um, with Balloon Gate taking U.S.-China relations to a new low, how much does China's support of Russia continue to affect the bilateral dynamic? I think it, it is quite significant, if, if not the most significant in terms of the bilateral relations. We know that uh, for all the meetings that the two uh, the working level officials have had since the Bali summit between Xi and Biden last year, a lot of the a lot of the conversation has focused on the Russian war in Ukraine and how to how to how to proceed from where we from where we are. So I I do think that U.S. China relations, at least in terms of the substance. Uh, is being significantly impacted by the uh, by China's relationship with uh, with Russia, which I think the Chinese understand. Which is why I think the Chinese are sending Wang Yi to Europe and paving the ground for something that uh, that at least in the Chinese view seems seems to be inevitable. But my question to Chinese interlocutors has been, why does this trip have to happen now, or why does this trip have to happen at a time? when China is trying uh, everything it can to improve relationship with uh, relations with, with the West, both United States and Europe. Do we really consider this the best timing? And the answer that I get is that, well, you know, there's pressure from Russia and there's also the optics of China's independent foreign policy. So it seems that there is a perception of absolute necessity within the Chinese leadership that this trip has to happen. But my recommendation or my, my, my advice to them is that, well, maybe the trip does has to happen, but maybe you can reschedule it to, to a later date. But then of course, that's also a tricky question. Xi Jinping is trying to meet with, uh, well, at least for the, for the Chinese foreign policy operators, they're trying to craft the meeting between Xi Jinping and Biden again in September during the G20 summit in New Delhi. And there's also the hope that Xi Jinping hopefully can come to the APEC summit in San Francisco in November this year. So that pretty much pushes the, uh, the, the schedule to the end of the year. So I understand that there is a trickiness coming to the schedule. But the funny thing is that uh, in January and in early February, I think the US-China, the foreign policy, the community, policy community work on US-China relations in both countries were discussing how about McCarthy's trip to Taiwan? What kind of damage that is going to do to the trend of improvement of bilateral relations between the two countries? But now it seems that the McCarthy's trip is being postponed to either later this year or next year. But Xi Jinping's trip to Moscow is emerging as a much bigger stressor for the bilateral relations in the months to come. 
Yeah, timing truly is everything, and it's becoming more and more clear these days. Um, looking ahead, how do you think China will navigate its evolving ties with Russia? What limits might China place on its willingness to be a military and economic lifeline, especially if U.S.-China relations continue to deteriorate? Well, we hope that the relationship between U.S. and China will not continue to deteriorate because yeah, after the agree. past. After the past six years, um, we've been out, all of us have been very traumatized and we're all hoping that please let things be better <laughs> this year. Um, so, so, but on the other hand that I, um, in terms of the China-Russia relations, we have seen that the economic ties between the two countries are growing, right? Which means that by the end of this war, Russia is going to be primarily an economic partner of China. And people wonder that what security significance or political significance Russia still carries. And that's a question that needs to be deliberated because uh, my sense is that what China has gained most from this war is a disillusionment about Russia being the power that China thought it was, but Russia actually is not. And I feel that this illusionment is going to reflect in China's relationship with Russia down the road. And look at Russia's weakened uh, comprehensive national power and its power status. It will be always also curious to see that to what extent Russia is willing to tolerate its own junior partner status in this uh, in this bilateral relations down the road. But if I think that also says that it will give China more leverage in this bilateral relations, it also will give China more ability to determine what it is willing and what it is not willing to do with Russia. So yes, enhance the ties between China and Russia is always going to be a problem, I think, for, from the US perspective, especially coming to, for example, their the joint patrol of the strategic bombers in Northeast Asia, and their joint um, naval exercises in the in the Black Sea or now off the, the coast of the, uh, now jointly with, with South Africa. So this type of strategic alignment between China and Russia is always going to be seen as a problem for, for the United States. But um, we're also looking at how this relationship will be undermined because of the result of the war in Ukraine. So that is still, uh, that is still evolving. Well, great. Yoon, I think we're we're running out of time, even though I'm sure we could keep analyzing the situation. I, I leave you um, the floor for any last thoughts or any wrap-up comments. Um, we know you've been watching this closely. So I guess, um, are there any questions that you wish you had the answer to? Uh, yes. So for example, I wish I had I, I wish I could find the answer to the question that what is going to happen to Russia's arms sales to both China and India, right? So one could argue that while China and Russia, China and India have had this border standoff and this this tension along its disputed along their disputed border, and India has still relied on Russia for the delivery of their weapon system. Seventy percent of the, the the weapon system used by the Indian military comes from the Russian sources. So is this going to have an impact over how uh, Russia will or will not continue their defense commitment or their arms delivery to, to India? I think that's one curious question. Another curious question is between China and Russia, we know that arms trade, mostly the Chinese purchase of advanced systems from Russia has been a key component in their, in their security cooperation, right? But now with the result of the Ukraine war, 
Um, I wonder whether the Chinese still have the same level of confidence about the Russian weapon system and whether Russia will continue have the ability to produce the weapon system that the Chinese are willing to buy. And of course, then there's also other questions about, well, how about China's role in the Arctic? Now Russia is in a weakened status um, in the bilateral relations. Will it still be able to, to tell China no? when it is uncomfortable with China's aggressive approach or with China's ambitious approach in the, in the Arctic. And there's also the China-Russia competition in, for example, the civil nuclear reactor as a power, uh, power industry globally. Russia has been a dominant player in that, in that field. And presumably for the foreseeable future, Russia will need this revenue more than ever. But that's also a field that the Chinese are very eager to dive into and to carve out a piece for itself. So there are all these competitive aspects and potentially collaborative aspect between the uh, between the two countries, and we, we don't know the answers just yet. Thanks so much, Yoon, for once again sharing your expertise and analysis with us today. And many thanks to my National Committee colleagues behind the scenes for helping to craft today's questions and make this interview happen. We hope you found the interview to be interesting and informative and that you will join us for future National, Pro National Committee programming in the future. Thanks again, and goodbye. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.